Hello, everybody. Before we get into this episode, I want to take one minute to make a small announcement. We've always had bonus episodes of this podcast, and they've typically been housed on our Patreon page, which is, of course, patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod. But as of today, our bonus episodes are also available through Apple Podcasts via its new subscription service. We have uploaded all of our previously existing bonus episodes, which is... uh, Three in total, in addition to the one that we put up for free a few weeks ago. Those conversations include talks with um, game designer Max Nichols about the Water Temple, composer Eric Buckles about the musical legacy of Zelda, and Matt and I talking about our top 10 favorite boss fights. We also have a brand new bonus episode up today with uh, Kylie Parker, Dangerous Pixels, of course, our good friend, talking about the new Breath of the Wild 2 trailer that was revealed at E3 this year, breaking it down and giving some of our theories. So the pricing for our subscription service comes down to $3.99 a month or $30 a year. Um, for either of those prices, you get access to all of our bonus episodes, which is currently at least four per season. We'll never be less than that. We'll sometimes be more than that. Our bonus episodes are full length and they feature a wide variety of conversations that we maybe don't have room to get into on our regular episodes of the series. So please go check that content out. If you are not listening to this show on Apple Podcasts, you can always get that content at our Patreon as well. But we just hope that this uh, this new outlet for listening to those episodes makes it easier for you guys to discover and to enjoy. So if you have any feedback about our bonus episodes or would like to hear different kinds of topics covered, we would love to hear that. Um, you can always send us an email at uh, sacredrealmspod at gmail.com and we would be happy to hear from you. So with that out of the way, on with the show. Okay, so maybe I lied. I have one additional note before we get on with our regularly scheduled programming. We have held our uh, once per season poll on our Patreon page where we ask people who are subbed there what game they want us to play after the one we're currently on. We did hold this poll a little earlier in the season than uh, than we did last season with Ocarina of Time. And the reason for that is with Skyward Sword HD coming out and us knowing that we were going to transition to another 3D Zelda game after Link's Awakening which is top down, uh, we wanted to know if our patrons uh, had any interest in that game being Skyward Sword HD. And uh, and that's mostly just because Matt and I wanted to know as soon as possible whether or not we were okay to play it, um, if we were just going to have to restart it a few weeks later, um, if that was the one that people ended up voting on. So we put that poll up and our patrons have spoken. Skyward Sword HD is the next game that we're going to be playing in the series. The last episode of Link's Awakening is scheduled to go up August uh, 25th, I believe, the last week of August. And the next episode after that will be episode one of Skyward Sword. Obviously, by the time you're listening to this episode, Skyward Sword HD is only two days away from release. So all that is to say, if you are planning on picking up that game, day one go for it go ahead and dive in um see what you think about it uh and then tune into our discussion about skyward sword hd starting weekly in september can't wait to uh talk about that one with you obviously it's it uh holds a special place in matt's and my hearts and we're thrilled to be able to go over it on this show so anywho that really is the last thing i have to say on with the program Welcome to Sacred Realms.
great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, and I'm usually joined by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. But, uh, you know, after the thrashing that Kylie and I gave him about all the ridiculous things he does and believes in in Zelda games uh, last week, he chose to sit this episode out. And uh, I had to bring in a... uh, you know, bring in, bring in a sub, bring in a qualified individual to help fill the gap. That person is none other than the other Willoughby sibling, Mr. Jackson Willoughby. Hey, what's up? Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, Matt was talking a couple weeks ago about how he was, you know, worried about the rule that you have over him. And I just wanted to say I'm here to put my word in for possibly a replacement. So, you know, consider this a job interview. Why don't you? Hmm. All right. Well, this just took on a whole lot of extra layers. Matt's, uh, hey, you know what? We all we all like Matt a lot, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it's time to sit him down and be like, look, Matt, this is our fault. You know, uh, we we did not we did not prepare you well enough. So we want to help you find some ways that you can be better. Maybe we'll have some weekly check ins for the next few weeks. To- it, it's not you. It's me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anywho, Jackson Willoughby, who you guys will remember from our uh, Spirit Temple episode of our uh, season one, Ocarina of Time, has rejoined us this week for this fourth chapter of Link's Awakening. And uh, and I have no doubt that he'll do an excellent job. So, um, uh, Jackson, how, how are you doing? How have you been? Well, life's been getting a little bit busier. You know, I started that job last time I was on the podcast i hadn't started it yet so now i'm actually a working person i'm part of society he is gainfully employed ladies and gentlemen yeah i'm actually you know part of the the working man you know i'm 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 out there doing things yeah definitely so um as preparation for this podcast and actually not even because we told you you were going to be on the podcast you just uh, said you wanted to keep up with what we were doing so um you got yourself a copy of Link's Awakening, which you had never played before. Is that correct? That's true. Yeah. Okay. So real quick, um, obviously the listeners know who you are, but let's get a little bit more into uh, in, into where you're at with Link's Awakening. Uh, give us your impressions of it. Obviously, it's a somewhat different kind of Zelda game than most of the ones that you've played up until this point. Um, just some first blush reactions, not specifically about the about the angler's tunnel section of the game but just overall yeah well first reaction is uh the loading screen you know you you watch the little cut scene when it goes into launching the game and then you get the amazing classic zelda soundtrack i just love it it, it brings on whole new emotions uh that you don't get in other games right well you're talking about the the anime manga inspired intro right with the animation where link is yeah, on yeah, the yeah. ship and it yeah but then it goes into the actual like title screen where it shows the mountain and it's bum 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 da, da, da. Would you call it a get hype moment? Yeah, probably. It got me real ready to play the game. Nice. Uh, but going into the game, you know, I started playing it and it was really uh, a lot more exploring than I expected from a 2D game. Uh, a 2D game I expected to be really closed off, and and it does a really good job of that, as you guys talked about in previous episodes, of closing you off from certain sections that you're not supposed to be in yet. But I was really intrigued with, you know, all the places that you could still go and, and the corners and that you could uh, scavenge and places you can get lost. So it was a really interesting uh 
changed from what I was expecting in my mind a 2D Zelda to be like. So you played Ocarina of Time along with us, correct? Yeah. So it must have been kind of jarring going to this kind of Zelda game after that because it is massively different. It, it was really strange to get used to the the different combat style and and the way that you're encountering enemies and uh, just the way that the story is told is completely different. But the one thing that never you know got weird for me was the art style is so beautiful that it didn't matter how different it was. I instantly loved this game just because it's so charming is a good word. Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking about this in the last episode with Kylie Parker, but there was a very intentional aesthetic done to the remaster of this game, which uh, puts it in a league of its own among Zelda remasters because traditionally it it just amounts to an up-res of the previous graphics and engine, right? But this has a new engine. It's got new graphics. It has a completely different foundation, but still manages to feel like the original game. I know you didn't play the original game, but even for somebody that hasn't, played the original on the Game Boy. Clearly, you have an appreciation for the aesthetics and the attention to detail that was paid to the, I I don't know, the toyetic um, vibe of the entire island. Absolutely. It's a a happy-go-lucky feeling kind of a game. It puts you in a nice, happy, smiling state of mind, even throughout as far as we've gotten in this game, right? We're on level four, uh, and it has moments where you're going through you know, like the places like the the woods where it's all dark and, and twisted and whatnot. And yet it's never gotten to the same point as Ocarina of Time where, you know, Ocarina of Time, it starts, you know, you're in you're in the Kokiri village and it's all happy. But, you know, it gets dark after that. But Link's Awakening doesn't have that. It's just always, you know, you're fighting evil monsters, but you're just so happy while you play it. It puts you in a good place. But that being said, would you say that there is a surreal and upsetting undercurrent to the whole thing because there is this whole like are we living in a dream yeah you know like uh, there's some undertones here the the fact that you're talking to animals and they talk back is really strange you know i I guess the way to put it is um if you just look at it surface level like let's say i don't know a little kid on a plane to sweden playing links awakening then you know you don't really care and you're just a happy kid right but if you're an adult maybe you're thinking more deeply about it it was holland actually um well whatever yeah jackson's referring to my first experience with links awakening which was in the summer of 1995 four five uh and uh yeah i was going on an international trip to holland the netherlands homeland of one max verstappen bonus points if you know what uh, sport he competes in um and they wanted me to not raise hell on the plane so they gave me a game boy pocket and a copy of Link's awakening which uh they were recommended by a co-worker of my dad's and you know, the the rest of my history with Zelda is just that history. That's where it all began. So anyway, well, Jackson, I'm glad that you're enjoying your time with the game. Just generally speaking, obviously, we're going to get more specifically into this one section of Link's Awakening as we're talking in this episode. Uh, before we do that, I want to get into a little bit of housekeeping. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly reexamination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. 
Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week, we play a new section of a Zelda game, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to bonus episodes, write in listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and so much more. Just a reminder that at the time you're listening to this episode, it will be midway through the month of July, July 14th to be exact, and uh, we will be in a whole other cycle of patrons waiting for the reveal of this month's trading card. So for the month of June, obviously, anybody who was pledged to Big Gorn Sword in the month of June got two separate trading cards, a uh, a Mount Tamarank uh, full-color card design and then also a Game Boy Green variant. So we will only have one card design in the month of July, but anybody who has been pledged to the Big Gorn Sword tier anytime during the month of July will be eligible to receive it. So get in on that. It's going to be great. Um, This month's card will be Link's Awakening themed, as will the one from the month of August. So it's going to be lots and lots of fun. Going to be some great stuff there. But without further ado, let's get into the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we're covering Link's Awakening Chapter 4, which includes Angler's Tunnel, the Yarna Desert, that whole section of the game. So I I had one question. How far into the game are we? Are we like halfway, three-quarter, not three-quarters, one-quarter, halfway? Where are we? We're just shy of halfway. Um... There are there are nine dungeons in this game if you count the Windfish's Egg at the end. This is dungeon four, so we're half and a bit. Um, but uh, we're just a little bit less than halfway through this season of the episode or uh, through the season of the podcast because obviously we're going to have a tenth episode, which is tying up Link's Awakening and where we rank it against Ocarina of Time and just wrap up our thoughts on the game. So okay, yeah, and. and- that leads into my next point. So this is our thoughts and feelings about this section of the game. And where I'm at right now is it's been so fun that it doesn't feel like I've played half the game. Right. Well, it goes quick, right? Yeah. I and mean, you're moving from one thing to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. Yeah. It goes really fast. You know, the, the side quests, unlike in Ocarina of Time, aren't like, oh, go and do this separate thing. A lot of it's like on your way. And it does a great way of just feeding you into the next part. I love this game so far. Tell you what, Jackson, we're going to get into that a bit more here in just a minute um, because it does relate to some notes that I have about uh, about the progression of this game as we get into part two of the Sacred Realms rundown. But we are currently in part one of the Sacred Realms rundown, which is generally the plot recap as read by Matt. Right. But but, uh, Matt, our, our dear, dear brother, beloved Matthew Craig Willoughby has abandoned us he's uh left us to fend for ourselves this week so i'm just gonna have to take care of this section in his absence this will be part one the plot recap as read by linden i'm gonna take the reins all right with another instrument of the sirens in hand we depart key cavern with instructions to seek our next goal at a waterfall 
First things first, though, with the Pegasus boots now in hand, we remember the interior of the Dream Shrine in Mabe Village, which was previously impassable. An urge to explore further takes hold of us, and with little effort, we are able to charge through the hordes of enemies and previously indestructible crystals to find the treasure at the center, which turns out to be an ocarina. We don't know any songs, but this curious instrument will surely be useful later. With this task done, we proceed to the large waterfall which flows down from Tao Tao Heights and discover a keyhole for which we have no key. Remembering advice from our owl guide, we go to the Yarna Desert in hopes of finding a solution to this impassable barrier. Unfortunately, our way seems blocked at every turn as we discover that the desert entrance is completely blocked by an immense snoozing walrus. The residents of nearby Animal Village tell us that a sure way to wake the lazy critter is to have the beautiful Marin sing him a wake-up song. So it's back to Mabe Village we go. Only Marin doesn't seem to be in her usual spot at the center of the town. We search high and low in the village, but Marin is nowhere to be found. At our wit's end, we finally decide to search the beach, and it is here that we finally find Marin in a peaceful oceanside cove. She looks like she could use some company. We sit for a while with Marin, where we listen to her thoughts about life on the island and what lies beyond. Eventually, Marin agrees to accompany us to Yarna Desert and to sing a song for the walrus. Marin's silky voice does the trick, and the walrus, now a little more pep in his step, bounces back into the ocean. Marin follows the critters of Animal Village back to their town, and we go on to the desert, where we are confronted by a massive sand-dwelling insect. After fierce battle, the insect falls and drops the angler key, which is surely the answer to our waterfall problem. Sure enough, once we're back at the base of the waterfall, the key clicks home and interrupts the flow of water, revealing the entrance to Angler's Tunnel. A drop from the cliffs above gives us access to the tunnel, a flooded dungeon which is mostly impassable to us as it is filled with deep water. A little exploration brings us to a chest containing flippers which allow us to explore the dungeon all the way to the deep well in which dwells the fierce anglerfish, which we dispatch after fierce combat. With the nightmare defeated, we are permitted entrance to a locked chamber containing yet another instrument of the sirens, the surf harp. As the dulcet tones of the harp play, we are once again enveloped in a blanket of white energy and are told to dive into the bay. That has been part one, the plot recap as read this week by me. Part two is our takes where we talk more generally about this section of the game and what it made us feel. Jackson, uh, how do you feel about this section of the game? So this section of the game is is interesting because you're going to more spots on the map than you have in any other section, right? You're going all over the place. Um, and it's a little bit more adventurous. You've got to work harder to find the secret paths to get to where you need to go. Uh, the only equatable part of the game before this, it would be when you're trying to get into the castle. Uh, but this just takes it up to another level where you're, you're, basically having a little bit of a, a puzzle just trying to find your way to where you need to go. Uh, and, and I think it's great. That's what this game does so well is, is making you figure out uh, where you need to be and, without being frustrating. It's perfect for riding the line of exploratory, 
but but not frustrating. Yeah. So obviously everything that we do here kind of takes us to really the the furthest eastern corner of the map that we can go, right? I don't think there's anything past Yarna Desert. So um, Yarna Desert and Animal Village are at the opposite end of the map to Mabe Village and the beach. And so in that sense, you know, we're, we're kind of veering much further afield than we ever have before, which is neat in and of itself. Um, I, I, I do think that, I don't know, I think that there's some very fun progression that happens um, trying to connect very disparate uh, areas of the map. Obviously, the waterfall and Tao Tao Heights and everything, it, it, it geographically is nowhere near Yarna Desert in the Animal Village, but you're relying on textual clues from characters that you interact with to tell you where you need to go and what is going to happen there. And obviously, at this point in the game, we have become conditioned by the sight of a big keyhole in a themed area. Like, you know, for Tail Cave, it was a big moldorm with a keyhole. And for the key cavern, it was a big slime eye with a keyhole. And for Angler's Tunnel, it's this big angler fish with a keyhole in front of a waterfall, right? So, like, we know what we're supposed to do. It's just trying to find the key to get us in there. And this really does lead us on a bit of a, a rabbit trail, no pun intended, uh, because we see a lot of sentient rabbits in this <laughs> section of the game. I mean, they're chatty. It's great. Um but there's a lot of really neat stuff that happens here. I think a lot of the fondest memories that people have of Link's Awakening do come from this section of the game. And that comes mostly from the interaction that you have with Marin at the beach. Yeah, I was going to just talk about that. Actually, you read my mind. Uh, this interaction with Marin really, I think, is the best romantic story start off in a Zelda game that I've seen. Uh, at least that's the vibe that I get. Maybe that's not what they were intending. But. Well, I think it's supposed to be kind of playful, right? I mean, yeah. Nintendo is is very reluctant to commit to romance for Link in any game that he appears in. But like, there's definitely pathos here. There's definitely layers of emotion. And um, Marin, I think, gains dimensions here as a character in a 2D Zelda game that, that a lot of them don't. And people have responded to that. I mean, the scene uh, of Marin and Link sitting together on the log looking at the ocean is a very famous snippet of this game. It's been recreated in many different ways. Um, the original Game Boy, you know, pixel art version. I actually saw people uh, who were recreating that in Animal Crossing as a as a painting and like sticking it on the beach on their islands. You know, I like it's kind of part of the Zelda zeitgeist, I guess. Yeah, I, I love part of this scene. It, it, it's it's really heartwarming, and, and Marin's telling you all about like this is. You know, if I th these are my dreams to to be a seagull and to fly away and, and all these things. And then it gets to probably the best part, not the most heartwarming, but the best part where Marin says, Link, are you even listening to me? And that's just so relatable. If you've ever been in a like a relationship or, you know, whenever you were young and you were sitting next to the girl that you had a crush on. Right. And you didn't really you felt awkward. You didn't know what to say. So you're just kind of sitting there letting her talk herself and you're like. What do I what do I do? <laughs> well, and it's funny, too, because it also plays into the whole like is is Link talking at all? Obviously, we don't hear him talk, but he's got to be saying something sometimes. Right. But also <laughs> he clearly wasn't there. How much does Link talk? That, that's a, a great question. And and where my mind went was. I like how Nintendo gives you the option. You can say, 
yeah, of course I'm listening. Or you can say, nope. And I'm just wondering which of you jerks sits there and just goes, nope, I wasn't listening to you. <laughs> I can't bring myself to do it. It feels awful. <laughs> like, what would Marin say? Like, oh, okay. Well, anyways, you should tell me about the rest of your day or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I, so, okay. <laughs> yes, those people aside, one thing that I really appreciated about this section that I completely forgot um, and was not a part of the Game Boy version is that when you get Marin, you know, you hold her up and it's like, yep, yeah, 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 right? Obviously, that's always been there. But there's this really cool thing that happens in the Switch version where the overworld theme, as long as Marin is with you, changes to this cool recorder version of itself it, it's very like uh it's very ocean fluty sounding it's it's really neat Yeah, and I love that little detail because not only is the entire game based around you collecting musical instruments, uh, but Marin herself is a very musical person and she loves to sing. And and I just that is such a great little detail that they added in to show like the development of the character and, and where you are in the game. Just telling you like a little bit more about why this is such a special character, Marin. You know, she's she's very special. Yeah. So we get uh, we get back to the walrus and Marin sings her song for him. He wakes back up. We gain access to the desert Uh, at this point in the game. Jackson, do you have did you get the ocarina for this? Yeah, I did. Um, I actually (laughs) this is going to start a little bit of a tangent, but I went into the dream shrine after level two when I could lift rocks because there's nothing else keeping you out. Right. So I, I went in there and. And without having the Pegasus boots, had to force my way through those stupid mimics. And they're really annoying. Um, I can't imagine what it's like on hero mode if they do double damage. But uh, So I was telling, you weren't in here for this, but um, I was telling Matt in the last episode we recorded that. Um, so I had six hearts when I went into the Dream Shrine. And I also had some of Crazy Tracy's medicine. And I hit one of these dudes because I didn't have I did the same thing as you. I went in before I had the Pegasus boots because I was trying to get that 100 rupee deal at the end. I knew I couldn't get the ocarina yet, but I wanted the money to get a heart piece. So um, I get in there and I get touched by one of those dudes one time and all six of my hearts go away. I got KO'd and it used my crazy Tracy's medicine. So I don't know how much damage they actually do. But it's uh, on hero mode more than six hearts. I, I think so in... Which is crazy because in regular mode, they do at least two hearts of damage. So if you think all damage is multiplied by two, I I don't know. It's something to look up. But yeah, I I went in there and got all the way around finally and got the hundred rupees. And then there's this stupid thing in the way. I'm like, what am I supposed to do about this? Right. It was super annoying. And then I was like, well, I just wasted this whole time. And now I've got this ocarina sitting in front of my face. So I got to go back and, and get it later, obviously, now that I have the Pegasus boots. 
But this leads me on to another thing that I was going to talk about, which was uh, a little bit ago, I talked a lot about how this game is really great for exploring, which you wouldn't expect in a 2D game. And when I was exploring around the uh, southeastern portion of the map around the desert and things like that, uh, I accidentally went into a section of the game that I technically wasn't supposed to be at before. No name popped up when I went into this room. So I don't know what it was. I've never played this game before, so I, I was just wandering, honestly. Uh, the best way I can describe it is to get there, you have to go through this maze of like ruins with almost like iron knuckle looking guys that uh, I assume you shoot with a bow and an arrow. Uh, they've got shields and their eyes glow when you touch them and they move and things like that. Uh, I had to use bombs or just get them to move out of my way to get to where I was going, but... Uh, the funniest thing happened was I killed one with a bomb and it dropped an arrow, but I don't have the bow. So it just goes, Hey, this is an arrow. Sure. would be nice if you had a bow to use it so you can make people go, ow. And I was like, this is weird. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was completely lost, but I was just exploring and I have no idea what that section is, but, uh, quite the interesting thing that you can't normally do in 3d zelda games well the uh the answer to your question is that that you actually stumbled into the lead up to the sixth dungeon face shrine and uh it is a peculiarity of some of these top-down zelda games where you can kind of go a little bit out of order to a certain extent if you want to um you wouldn't be able to make it very far i don't think that you could progress in face shrine the dungeon at all uh, if you didn't have the hookshot, for instance, which you get in Catfish's Maw, the fifth dungeon. I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think that you can get into Face Shrine earlier than you're supposed to be able to. You do need the bow. But is it in the shop right now? Yeah, yeah. So after the third mission, the bow is available for okay. 980 rupees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But sure, it's sure, sure, sure. Okay, yeah. Well, that's the only way you can get it in this game. So, like, uh, yeah, I mean, you can get into Face Shrine, apparently, before you've even gotten into Angler's Tunnel, which is crazy. You just would not be able to beat it. Yeah, no, I walked in, and the first thing I see is this big blue knight, and I slashed him with my sword, and I dropped a bomb, and I threw magic powder at him. And it did nothing, and I died. Yep, you need the arrows. <laughs> yep. So it, it was a fun thing of me going, I wonder how far I can get, and then quickly realizing this is as far as I get. <laughs> so we get to the desert itself, and we have a bit of a mini-boss interaction here with the, the sand insect, you know. And the desert is kind of a prickly <laughs> place just yeah. in general because, you know, there's cactus, there's levers, there's a lot of stuff in there that can hurt you. Um but uh, this insect boss fight, not the hardest thing in the world, but I mean, it, it, it's fun. It takes a minute. Yeah, I just wish it took a minute for a more interesting reason. I, I didn't really like this. I thought there was better mini bosses in the game. Uh, this centipede with a giant like drill on its butt or something. I don't know. Uh, it's it's really annoying because one, you're dealing with quicksand, which adds a fun element to it. But did you fall in? Uh, I did once. But the only other times I fell in was on purpose um, to get like hearts or whatever. Yeah, sure. But like, so you fell in and then this is classic top down Zelda where you, you end up in this underground cavern and then you have to go back up and fight the dude again 
only now his health is completely back. Yeah. 100%. Well, obviously there's no health bar. So I didn't realize that. And I was like, dang, this boss is taking forever. Like, come on, man. And yeah, it's just really annoying because uh, all you can do really is see his mound coming up, hit him once with your sword, and then he's too far away for you to actually do damage again. So I wish there was a way to make it to where you can do more than just one slash and then wait 10 seconds for him to show up again. Yeah, sure. But I mean, regardless, this all goes pretty fast, honestly. I mean, it's yeah. there's nothing really to it. Um, we get the angler's key. We can make our way back up to the waterfall, open up the way to angler's tunnel. Um, and and I don't know. It's just, it, it really does amount to a mini dungeon, right? Yarna Desert is a mini dungeon in somewhat the same way that Canelet Castle was. It's just not quite as good at doing that. Yeah, I, I think Canelet Castle has uh, the edge in more than one way. Probably the main way is that it's an actual building. Uh, structures have a good way of making you feel importance and and uh, weight to them. So, you know, walking into the castle, you've got the guards and, and it just feels all official. Well, and also just like the density of enemies. I mean, I would say Candlelight Castle was harder to clear yeah. than, than the desert was. Yeah, and you had actual like puzzles. There there weren't really puzzles in the desert per se. Uh, I felt like I was expecting more from that area of the map because, you know, so many people are telling you, hey, this is where you need to go. You need to go to the desert to get this key. And I was expecting more i guess but yeah uh, so uh in the last episode we were having a conversation about how the main side quest in this game the item trading quest actually ends up being required for most of the milestones that take you from one dungeon to the next the next the next and uh i'm just curious because i don't think you actually have to do any item trading to get into angler's tunnel but you get hints about what you're supposed to do if you do participate in them and this was so like last week uh, to get into Key Cavern, you had to trade the dog food to the out to the croc for the bananas. And then you had to give the bananas to the monkey and all that. And and so by the point that we've gotten to in the game this week, you've gotten the uh, stick from or you used the stick you got from the monkeys to knock the beehive down from for Terran. And then you can take the beehive to the bear cook in Animal Village, and he'll tell you how to get the walrus out of your way. See, actually, I didn't do that. Okay, cool. So I didn't do that. Uh, the first part of the game, I did as much of the trading quests as I could, right? Props to the croc for just eating straight up aluminum. Pretty impressive. Sure. But uh, and that's where it stops because you don't have anything left. Uh, I did talk to the guy uh, in the house in Mob Village, Mob Mabe, Mabe, Mabe Village. Um, and he tells you over and over again, I'm going to get lost in the hills. And you're like, you're a weirdo. Why? Why? <laughs> why not just avoid the hills? <laughs> well, yeah, but he did it. He got lost in the hills. I know. At least he's a man of his word. But so you did run into him. Yeah, no, I did. So obviously you you run into him on your way towards the towards the uh the waterfall. Yeah. But I didn't do the trading quest for, you know, I have the stick, but I didn't know until just now, honestly, that you have to hit the, yeah, the no, stick. Yeah, no, so here's how it goes. You give the stick to Terran to knock down the beehive. You give the beehive to the bear. 
for his recipe, whatever he's making, he gives you a pineapple and you give the pineapple to Pa up on the uh, up on the cliffs. And then he gives you a hibiscus. And that's where I'm at in the trading quest. Okay, so and I didn't know that if you do that, that's how you find out about getting Marin, right? I thought it was just plain obvious you have to go get Marin for two reasons. One, like everybody in the animal village is like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen Marin in forever. And then the walrus is literally dreaming and there's a picture of Marin in the dream, right? In his, <laughs> right, line, yeah. in his dialogue. So <laughs> I was like, well, crap. And I walked back to back to the village and I saw that she wasn't singing by the statue. And I went, well, I remember this one person said she'd like to sit at the beach. And so I went to the beach. So as somebody who's never played this game before, because we talked about this a lot in Ocarina of Time, a lot of these things that take you from point A to B to C to whatever, I don't even think about them anymore. I don't even think about how um, intuitive they are or how not intuitive they are because I just remember them all. You know, I've done I played all these games so many times, especially Ocarina of Time and Link's Awakening. I mean, we front loaded this podcast with probably the two Zelda games that I played the most, honestly. And um, and yeah, I just have it committed to memory. But I do think every episode like, man, how like do people get this? You know, (laughs) does this communicate to people who have never played this before? Is it intuitive that you're supposed to go from this thing to this thing? And it's very interesting to me that you say that you made that connection easily. Yeah, because uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't feel like there was anything that was. I'm obviously the the walrus telling you that you need Marin is pretty explicit. But once you get back to Mabe Village and it's like, where's Marin? You know, I mean, for me, that would have been a situation where I end up just kind of like looking around the map for yeah. Marin. I, I guess I'm just lucky that I remembered having a conversation with someone in the village, one of the kids uh, about it, which side note, I think it's so ridiculous that Nintendo puts these kids in this game that tell you important information, but then they're like, but what do I know? I'm just a kid. And you're like, Nintendo, am I supposed to trust this person or, or not? Like, why are you confusing me? Well, I think they're trying to imbue these characters with a little bit of personality. Yeah. Yeah. Although again, as I said in the spirit temple about, uh, in the spirit temple episode from season one, where whenever you're in the Gerudo Valley and you're rescuing the carpenters, they all say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe there's something about the Zelda universe where people just hand out scripts to each other and memorize them of what to say because they all say the same thing. Yeah. Okay. So before we move on to the dungeon, I want to talk a little bit more about the music. We already mentioned the cool recorder reprise of the overworld theme that happens when you get Marin. But also, this is the first time in the game, I think, that you're really required to go to Taltal Heights. And so that brings us to what is probably the most famous piece of music from this game, which is the Tao Tao Heights theme. think about that piece of music jackson because i i have some thoughts but tell me what you thought did it stick out um 
honestly, it didn't stick out as much to me as the other pieces of music in this game. And, and there are two pieces of music that stick out more for very good reasons that I can get into. Obviously, the classic Zelda theme, Walking Through the Prairies, that's just so iconic that that obviously is the one that sticks out. Uh, and uh, the ballad of the of the fish that uh, Marin sings sticks out to me, but that's for a different, more interesting reason. So I'm actually going to play real quick. I'll, I'll cut this into the podcast, but this is the only piece of music in this entire game and the Switch remaster of the game that I think the original composition was better. The original Tal Tal Heights theme, I think it had a bit more... I don't know. There's just something so catchy about the 8-bit composition of it. It's re- and, and don't get me wrong. The wind instrument rearrangement of this theme in this game is great. It's it's very good. It's very tastefully done. It's awesome. But it just doesn't jump out at you the way that the original one did. We'll, we'll editing like this out, but I'm going to play this for Jackson real fast. Okay, so we are coming back from a brief music break, and Jackson has just listened to both the original version and the remastered instrumental version, and, I mean, tell me. Okay, so the original is such a beat. Like, it, it is so enthusiastic and upbeat and, and in your face, and, it, and it's awesome, and I love it. The new remastered version is much more weighted, you know, it feels much more serious. The way that the composer did it just doesn't sound so upbeat with a, a drum beat. It sounds more, uh, more more serious, like I said. It, it's impactful, right? It's not quite as adventurous. It's got a bit more atmosphere to it. Yeah, for sure, which I guess makes sense with uh, now the everything else being updated, but the original is probably my favorite it definitely i mean it definitely gains a bit more nuance being performed by an entire orchestra you know (laughs) um of course that makes sense but there is something real fun about just that original telltale heights track i don't know anyway it's 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 intangible in in a certain way it is great okay so we've spent a minute on part two let's go ahead and get into part three which is the dungeon map where we analyze this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more jackson let's talk about angler's tunnel most of which or a large chunk of which is inaccessible right from go just because you don't have the flippers right um this dungeon i thought was very interesting and i'm i this dungeon i thought was very interesting and i made an observation about it right from the minute that we step in it is much less um, contained as a series of rooms than other dungeons in the game. Like there are dungeons like Tail Cave or Bottle Grotto, for instance, where each room is one contained tile. And when you exit that tile, there's a hard pan to another tile. And the reason that they do that is because a lot of those dungeon rooms are able to be assembled in Dompe's shack 
as the extra dealio that you can do in this game, the dungeon builder, right? You can assemble a dungeon using tiles of dungeon rooms that you've beaten before and create a whole dungeon. And this dungeon feels very different because it does not adhere to a tiled arrangement like those past dungeons. You can walk freely-ish in a lot of places from one area to another area. It feels a bit more open and maybe a bit, a bit more organic for that reason. Um, wh- what did you think of Angler's Tunnel? Yeah, the first thing that I noticed was unlike the previous three that we have done, I was able to get the map, the compass, and uh, what's the other thing that we get? The owl beak. Yeah, and the owl beak. That's it. I was able to get those three items quicker and easier than in any other dungeon that we've done so far. There's really nothing between you and them at all. No, it it felt so much more uh, less confusing than the previous dungeons. It was more more natural and and easier, I I think, is a fair thing to say. Uh, I had a lot less trouble with this dungeon than I did in previous ones. Maybe you're doing less backtracking or maybe the backtracking you're doing is uh, just more obvious. If you break this dungeon down by the amount of rooms that you have to walk into, I feel like it's smaller, definitely smaller than Key Cavern. I would say it's probably even smaller than Bottle Grotto. Um the only backtracking that they really require you to do just comes by virtue of acquiring the flippers, which allow you to approach certain rooms in different ways and unlock things that you couldn't get to before. Um, and they do kind of block the flippers off from you for a decent amount of the dungeon. I mean, uh, the process of getting to the mini boss does take a while. You know, there's the there's the uh, key door that you have to go through to get to the mini boss, and the key unlocks easily enough. You just have to kill a few choo-choos in the room before the mini boss but then the key drops from the ceiling and falls into a hole and you can't go down and get the key because it drops into deep water and you have to get the flippers before you can dive down and get the key right so yeah um with, with this dungeon i actually spent less time in this dungeon than i think any of the others maybe that's just me getting a grasp for the way this game plays Uh, Or maybe that just says something about the way my mind works or the way the dungeon was designed. Uh, I really liked it. I thought it was it was a lot of fun, but it was a little too easy. Everything in it was was easy. And in the other dungeons, there was always something that was challenging. Like in the previous dungeon, level three, you know, you're having to make these stupid worms eat your bombs. And half the time you put a bomb in their face and they wiggle their head and turn around. And it, it was annoying. There was nothing really challenging, I guess. Uh, about this dungeon yeah i mean um, this is so i don't want to get too ahead of myself um but the boss and the mini boss in this dungeon are both far easier than bosses and mini bosses that we've faced in this game private or previous to now um well obviously the slime i killed you it was an unfortunate circumstance all right (laughs) look i caught a lot of hell about this in the last episode matt's gone i don't need you to pile on me right now I mean, I got to get one thing in. All right, all right, all right. So um, before we get on to the boss, tell me about the mini boss. What was your main strategy for beating the giant Octorok? Um, it, <laughs> instantly, I was reminded of being in Butthole City, as I call it. <laughs> uh, Jabu Jabu's belly, for, it, for y'all who don't remember. 
Yeah, Jabu Jabu's Valley, the mini boss, is very similar to this, but more Basic, annoying. Basically the same boss, yeah. Exactly, except for that guy has giant spikes on him and he's a lot more terrifying. This thing, it's the same thing, except for easier, because now that you have the feather, you can just jump like diagonally over a corner of this guy and stab him in his back. It was super easy. Um, it, I didn't have any trouble with it. Basically, what I would do is I would hit him in the back and then I would rocks feather over him to be behind him. And then I would use my Pegasus boots to charge up, you know, from one of the straights and hit him in the back again. Had no problems. So my main strategy for this guy was literally just jump over him with the rocks feather, hit him from behind with your sword, repeat until dead. I mean, I mean, that's basically all I did. So he he's not too hard. Let's talk about the boss of the dungeon, which is the anglerfish, who is also notably non-difficult. Well, okay, before we get there, we should probably talk about how we get there, which we mentioned a little bit before was the flippers, uh, which we haven't really talked a whole lot about. And I feel like it's important because the flippers had a unique part of this game where um, you're able to go into different places in the dungeon that you hadn't been able to go before. Um, they're not inherently like as cool as I was expecting them to be mainly because I was hoping Link would wear them all the time. It'd be kind of funny to see Link walking around with yellow feet now, but what like duck walking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, uh, make it an equipable piece of, of, uh, your armor, like cosmetic. Yeah, yeah. You know, why not? Um, but <laughs> besides that little joke there, but uh, as scuba divers, we understand how awkward it is to walk in flippers. Hey, you have, man, you have not undertaken a truly difficult task until you've tried uh, stupidly to walk toward the ocean in flippers. Yeah, turn around and walk backwards into the ocean. That's the only way it works. Yeah, I mean, having real world experience, I understand why Link doesn't wear the flippers all the time, but you know, I get it. Okay. But I just have to, I got a bone to pick here, right? Because the link of Link's awakening sucks at swimming, right? It's not even just, we're not even talking about diving deep here. This dude can't get into water. That's any higher than his knees other than or else he loses a heart. And I have a question. What was this dude doing on a boat in the ocean? In the beginning of this game. You know what? I don't have any answers for you, but my big gripe with Link not being able to swim is in the remaster, uh, they added this horrible sound of him drowning every time he <laughs> falls in the water. And it's awful. It's so, so bad. It, it hurts my ears. But like, here's my thing. I mean, sure, flippers, they help you dive deeper, but a person who doesn't know how to swim putting on flippers doesn't make them able to swim, right? I mean, I, am I going crazy here? No, you're you're absolutely right. All right. You're absolutely right. Maybe instead of flippers, we should have gotten him some of the, uh, like a rubber ducky maybe that he could wear or the, <laughs> the lifesavers you wear on your arms, something like that. I don't know. It's almost like the answer to this question is the fact that from a game design perspective, they needed ways to gate us off from other areas of the map and uh, thus Link is not able to swim without the flippers. <laughs> It's almost like that's the case. See, now I've convinced myself I wanted to see Link wearing flippers, but now I just want to see him with his little arm floaties even more. So 
I mean, that would have been. Uh, but hey, you know what? Uh, there's nothing saying that won't ever happen. I think that's highly unlikely, but I'm here for it. Maybe I'll make a trading card out of that link with uh, the arm floaties. That would be adorable. Nintendo has been known to do weird things. It's not beyond them. Mm-hmm. But anyways, you were saying the boss. Yeah, okay. So the anglerfish. I mean, look, is is this dude hard by any conceivable metric? I mean, I got hit once and it was by a falling rock that I didn't see. And that's it. And the thing is, this dude wasn't hard even in the Game Boy version. You could just spam this dude with sword attacks and he would be dead almost instantly. And I think that they tried to include a few mechanics into the boss fight in the and the Switch version that make it just a little bit more difficult. I mean, uh, movement in the water, um, rocks falling down from the ceiling, whatever. You know, a few obstacles, but like... Really, this dude is so easy to beat. I think this is by far the most anticlimactic boss in the in the entire game. Okay, so when you first see the boss, you know, it, it, the boss says some dialogue, which props for the fish being able to speak underwater clearly. Very impressive. Uh, but then it comes up where, it, you know, it, it zooms in on the fish and it shows the boss name as Angler Fish, you know, and this fish does this awesome like, he looks really menacing. And then he's a whole, a whole lot of nothing. And if your fight manages to go long enough, he calls in his little fish buddies, right, which are basically just mini versions of him. And they die in one hit. One hit. This boss fight is so easy that the boss, his only defense is, I'm going to drop rocks on you that you can evade really easily, and I'm going to call in my little minions that are no harder to defeat than anything you saw in the first five minutes of this game. So it's really interesting. The only cool part of this, basically, is the way the boss looks, dope, and you're underwater, Super cool. Sure. Well, and actually, and in some ways that makes this boss fight even all the more disappointing to me because the Zelda series has a long history of highly unsettling boss fights that take place at the bottom of a deep pool of water. You know, uh, like I'm thinking of the of Morpheal in Twilight Princess, for instance, or um, I guess uh, Gyorg and Majora's Mask might fall into this category too. See also the giant Dianoga from Star Wars Shadows of the Empire. That's not a Zelda game, but you're absolutely right. Which, screw that guy, gave me nightmares for years. This thing terrifies Linden probably to this day. He doesn't tell us this, but I just have this feeling. God, scary. Anywho, uh, this boss fight could have been, I mean, look, you're losing some perspective. Just because of, I mean, if you're in the water, you're limited fighting an enemy in Link's Awakening. You're limited to the 2D side view, right? And you're also limited in the amount of screen space that you can occupy in that view. So really, how much could they have done here? Well, my, my first instinct is you could have at least made it to where you had to, you know, hit him with your sword and then maybe drop bombs on him from above. In this mission, you get bombs for certain things. And obviously, you should have bombs at this point anyways from the shop. And how hard is that? Bombs fall down in this game with gravity. But you gravity. can't, if you drop a bomb in the water in this game, it doesn't, like, it goes away, right? It doesn't work. Well, I don't know. I've never tried it, but... There are tons of of things that you could have done, and that that's just the first thing that sticks out in my mind, at least. 
that I've seen other games do where you're, you know, dropping bombs on people from above or, or whatever. But I get that there is not too much that could have been done here from a space standpoint, but like from an enemy AI standpoint, how aggressive the angler fish is, uh, you know, there are ways that this boss fight could have been made more difficult in the switch version. And I'm a little disappointed that that didn't happen. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe if, even if it's just a boss and enemy speed thing where it moves faster or it tracks you more aggressively or, or whatever, you know, I, I think that there are ways that this could have been done just a little better. Every boss in this game up to this point has some form of attacking you, whether it's charging at you or, or using some sort of projectile. And this boss does nothing except for swim and then hit the wall. Right. It doesn't even charge at you in the water, which doesn't make any sense. The only way that this boss is going to damage you with its with its own body is if you happen to run into it, in which case you're probably stupid. Yeah, right. Like, how did, how how did you make that happen? All you yeah. have to do is is just stay above him, uh, uh, right up above his little lantern. I I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. It's weird. Anyway, it's it's certainly not high up in the pantheon of great Zelda boss fights, right? I mean, no, no, no it's not. This is probably the low point of of this game. You know, every Zelda game or every game in general has that little dip it's got to go through, right? Uh, it, that's just how game design works. You know, not every game is going to have a hundred percent best everything. Uh, but, you know, that's okay. I This doesn't discolor the way I view this game so far. It's still amazing. Uh, just because one little dungeon is a little easy, it it's all right. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, what else is there really to say about it? It comes, it goes. It's, from a scenery standpoint, it's neat. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting part of this game, and then we move on. It, yeah. It's gone as soon as it arrives. So. You finally get an item that allows you to go to all the places that you've been wanting to go, and every time you try to jump over that with your Pegasus boots, you drown. So that that's the one upside. Yeah. Okay, that has been part three of the dungeon map. Let's get into part four where we talk side quests. Jackson, what side questy nonsense did you get up to this week? Well, okay, before I get into my side quest... Uh, this is a little off topic. Matt decided it was a good idea while I was away visiting my girlfriend uh, to steal a bottle of my bourbon from my cabinet without asking. And so now I'm going to refill my glass with some of his bourbon because thank you very much. Oh, geez. Which one are you choosing? I'm going to get the TX bourbon. It's not expensive. So, you know, I'm not doing him a whole lot of harm. But oh, uh, the TX bourbon know. is good, though. Exactly. I'm still okay. tasting. I'm still choosing a tasty thing. OK, go for it. Well, while you're doing that, I'll tell you what side quest stuff I got done during this section of the game. As previously stated, I went a little above and beyond on the item trading quest. I gave the honeycomb to the cooking bear, gave the pineapple to Papa, which, by the way, the text when when he's talking to you, he refers to himself as Papa. There's an L at the end of the name. I don't understand. I don't know if that's just like a translation mishap or um, I don't know. One day in the far future when I have grandkids, maybe I'll be like, hey, my name is Papal. And they'll be like, Papa. I'd be like, OK, yes, Papa, but also Paul, Papal, you know, I don't know. 
I, I think you just are trying to be fancy. Uh, but also, it doesn't necessarily surprise me because there's already so many weird things in this game that a guy misspelling his grandfatherly name, I can only assume, or just his regular name, doesn't really catch me that I awkward. doubt his real name is... Well, actually, I mean, if his name is Paul and his kids call him Papa, then it becomes Papal pretty easily. Yeah, I know. I mean, why not? Um, just This is for Matt real quick. <laughs> I don't know if you could hear that or not, but that's for you. Are you pouring yourself a little podcast juice there, Jackson? Mm, it's going to be real yum. When it's not yours, it tastes even better. That's true, actually. That's one of the great rules of life. Um, okay, awesome. Uh, so, yeah, I got I got the item trading quest stuff done. Uh, fished up a few more heart pieces, a few more secret seashells. I got the first present from the seashell mansion, which was a piece of heart. And I actually need to go and check into how many seashells are required to get the level two sword, the Koholent sword, because you don't have to get all the seashells in the game to get that. It's uh, I don't know. I think I think you can get all of them, but like 15 or so and still get the sword. But I need to go check that out. And I probably before the next dungeon, I'll actually do a little tour of the island with my shovel and try to find a few seashells and. Get closer to doing that. But uh, let's see what else. Oh, hey, quick tip. Um, After you have wakened the walrus and he goes back into the ocean, go with your ocarina to Marin and Mabe Village. Learn the windfish's ballad, the ballad of the windfish from Marin. And once you have that, which you need anyway for later in the game, go get it from her now. Uh, you can go back to where the walrus was and play the ballad of the windfish by the sea, and the walrus will pop out of the water and toss you a secret seashell. Well, that's really good to know because honestly, I've just been kind of stumbling upon them at this point. Uh, having never played this game, I'm really just wandering until I find where I need to be. Uh, so it's hard for me to say like what side quests I have and haven't done. Uh, because honestly, they'd kind of just come and go as I happened upon them. Um, I really didn't even think about half of the trading side quests. They kind of just were like, oh, hey, you found like a ribbon or something. And I was like, oh, cool. I guess I need to find out what this is for. So, <laughs> well, it all, I mean, most of those kinds of items that you're going to find are all going to feed back into the main item trading quests. So, when we're talking about side quests and Link's Awakening, anything that's not that is going to be related to finding heart pieces or secret seashells or tiles for the uh, dungeon builder at Dompe's Shack or in the fishing minigame. I mean, just trying to catch all the exotic fish that are in there because some of the Mario species of fish show up in that minigame. There's a blooper and a cheap cheap from Mario that show up in there. They're hard to catch, but I mean, it's stuff like that. Um, but really, the main side quest in this game is kind of required <laughs> as you kind of are progressing through it anyway. So, yeah, it's it, that's what I found. Obviously, that's the one thing that you kind of have to do. Um, I did a lot of the uh, claw game uh, in, in the village, which was interesting. And getting that seashell in the claw was the biggest pain in the butt because you grab it. And if you don't grab it exactly right the first time, every single time after that that you grab it, it flies out of your claw. Yep, it's a pain. 
it's real annoying. And the last time I did it, it landed right next to the conveyor belt. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Picked it up. <laughs> I picked it up again and it fell out. And I was like, are you kidding me? And it happened to just like bounce and then land on the conveyor belt. And I was like, thank God. I'm so done. <laughs> well, sometimes you just get lucky, you know? Yeah, I guess. My question is, my question is, why is there a Hylian shield in the back? Because you get that at the very, like, the first thing that you get in this game is the shield. And the only way you lose it, as far as I know up to this point, is if you get eaten by one of the things in the prairie, it takes it away. That, no, that, I mean, that's the reason that you have it. Um, all you have to do is kill the thing and, and it gives it back. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but there is, okay. It is possible for you to get your shield eaten by one of those things. And then if you leave the screen and come back, it'll be gone. So it is possible for your shield to get consumed by a like, like, and then to not be able to get it back. And then you have to go buy it. Um, or win it from the crane game. So that's why that's there. Okay. Well, I mean, if you happen to do that to yourself, then I don't know what to tell you, man. <laughs> I honestly, I don't want to insult our listeners, but geez, that would be something else. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that, that that's why that's there, though. Okay. Okay, so that has been part five, or sorry, that was part four where we talked side quests. Let's get into part five, Z-targeting, where we lock onto fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. I'm going to lead off here. Um, I try to get pretty niche with my Z-targeting picks, like, oh, you know, a, a, special, a special achievement in, uh, in character performing excellence in the Zelda game. Someone who's really just kind of breaking the mold and doing something weird, but... For this week, I'm going to go with one of the main characters of this game, and that is Marin. Um, because I really do enjoy this section of the game and the layers of storytelling that they give to Marin. There is something so relatable about the person from a small town who's never been anywhere else, and they're just curious about what is outside. And I don't know. The fact that that is paired with a character who has previously been so helpful and relatable and empathetic to Link, it, I, I don't know, it creates layers on top of a very two-dimensional character. And it's not surprising that people have um, found resonance with what that character has become because of just this one conversation. I mean, and of course, this is paid off later in the game, especially if you get the flawless ending where you don't die um, but Marin's whole conversation about if she was a seagull or whatever, you know, it, I don't know. It's, it's also heartbreaking because one of the main through lines of this game is how real is the environment that you're in? How real are these people that you're coming to know? And Marin at the very least has got self-awareness as a character to ask those questions and, I don't want to get too much into why this is emotionally impactful now, because we'll do that in uh, two weeks from now. But um, there's reasons to, I don't know, to doubt the reality of who she is and what everything is on this island. So 
I don't know. I, I thought that this was great. And then also it is just a lot of fun to have Marin tagging along behind you for the entirety of that first section of this thing, you know, um, she's so encouraging, you know, you're digging a hole in the ground and she's like, dig, dig to the center of the earth. It's a, it's a great time. I don't know. Now, Marin is probably now one of my favorite characters in Zelda. She is so sweet and and so full of life. Uh, she's something super special that that you don't really see too often. And as you were talking about, you know, is this even real or whatever? Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe headcanon is the in a previous uh, incarnation of Link that Marin is modeled after someone that Link was interested in. Zelda? This is, could be. Uh, could be. I was thinking more of uh, who's the girl on the farm in Ocarina of Time. Well, but this is different timelines. Yeah, know? but I don't know. Just if, well, if remember, Link is remember in, a- in the intro section of the game, Link is waking up in the bed in Marin and Taryn's house, and Marin says... Zelda? No, my name is Marin. So I think there is supposed to be a connection, at least an appearance and personality between those two characters, obviously. Um, That all goes back to the fact that for whatever reason, a lot of the things that are happening on this island are reminiscent of things that Link has already experienced in A Link to the Past, right? We fought Moldorm, who's an enemy that we've faced before. A lot of the enemies are the same as enemies we faced in Hyrule in A Link to the Past. And now we have this girl, Marin, who looks suspiciously like Zelda from A Link to the Past. Um, are there reasons for all that? Yeah, who knows? I mean, when the mind dreams, it pulls from, from reality. And if Link is in a coma or whatever, you're... you're theory is about this dreamscape of a of a world uh, it bears to reason that marin is so special in link's mind because he's modeled after someone that is so special to link in his actual life uh i think she's really incredible sure okay so uh give us your z targeting pick Who, who'd you have so my z targeting pick i picked out before i had even really finished this section and it's papal just because I, every time I go into the village, I always make sure to talk to everybody or at least as many people as I think is necessary just to see if they have anything new to say. Uh, and every time he's like, I'm going to be lost in the hills. Make sure you look for me. And then sure enough, the stupid idiot was lost in the hills and and, and go him for, for doing him. Um, he's an idiot, but at least he, he stuck by his word and (laughs) at least he decided to warn someone beforehand. He was like, listen, I'm an avid hiker. I know I'm going to get lost. So I'm going to let the hero know I'm going to get lost. It's a really, it's a really interesting kind of person who's able to say, Hey, what's up, dude? I'm going to have a major life crisis here pretty soon. Just saying. And then in a few weeks you stumble upon this guy having a major life crisis and he's like, Hey, what's up? Told you I was going to do this. Like, ah, I feel like you maybe could have allowed this to not happen to yourself, but cool, whatever, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess the guy's going to do what the guy's going to do. Uh, one interesting thing about this Z target that I found out is if you haven't done the trading quest, like I haven't, and he asks you for some of the pineapple, uh, you have to say either nope or can't. And either way you say it, he goes, bro, that's not cool, homie. And I'm like, ah, 
or he says ombre or something like that. And it, and it just stabbed my heart. I was like, man, I wish I had some pineapple for you. He calls you ombre? I, I think I'm, I'm probably remembering that wrong, but it's something weird like that. I'll have to look it up. Huh. Weird. Up. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. Um, I never spoke to him before I had the pineapple, so I, I never had that interaction, but, but that's fascinating. As Mr. Spock would say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That has been part five Z targeting where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. Part six is final thoughts. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up this section of the game in just a few sentences. I, I think that this section of the game was a lot of fun, if for no other reason, just because of the wide variety of geographical areas of the map that you discover as part of doing it. Um, it's fun getting the flippers. It feels like it really opens up a, a lot of the map for you. This dungeon was maybe not the most challenging in the world. The boss was certainly not the most challenging in the world. But I think that the narrative development that we get, especially through the character of Marin, really helps fill out, um, I don't know, our investment in, in this game and the characters that exist within it. This section of the game is super special uh, just because you get to meet Marin in a more intimate way. Uh, well, not that intimate. No, you know what I mean? Y you get to know her a lot more in depth. Um, and other than that, it's not really that important, but I think that one section just makes up for the rest of it, right? It, it's more about developing characters than it is actually enjoying the combat. Like other sections of the game might be cool. Sounds good to me. This has been the Sacred Realms Rundown. Next week, we will, of course, be back for another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown. We'll be talking about everything that happens around the Catfish's Maw, which is the fifth dungeon of Link's Awakening. Everything that happens in the uh, in the bay there. So going to be some fun stuff. Lots of uh, lots of extras to get into around next week's dungeon. It's going to be a great time. Jackson, before we get out of here, I'm just curious. I have a question I want to ask you real quick um, because we don't have a whole lot in the way of news. Actually, I think by the time this episode comes out, let's see what date is. This? Okay. This episode is slated for July 14th. And I believe what day is Skyward Sword supposed to come out? Okay, Jackson, before we get out of here, I just want to remind everybody that two days from when this episode drops, you will be able to purchase and play Skyward Sword HD on your Switch. Um, obviously, check into some reviews on your places, IGN, GameSpot, stuff like that, and see how they are receiving the game and its enhancements from the Wii version. But it goes without saying. I mean, look, if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, you know that Matt and I feel very strongly about how Skyward Sword is truly one of the better Zelda games. It's got an amazing story, amazing music, um, amazing dungeons, amazing combat. It, it truly stands uh, head and shoulders above a lot of other Zelda games in a lot of respects. And now is the best time to dive into it and to discover that for yourself. So please play Skyward Sword HD. Let us know what you think. Jackson, that leads me into one thought. 
as we go forward in this podcast, what, uh, I don't know, what Zelda games are you hoping that we're going to have to dive into sooner rather than later? Well, uh, a link to the past and a link between worlds instantly stand out as, you know, their recent re-releases. And I just never picked them up and I really wanted to get into them. Um, Those those two really stand out in my mind, I think. Uh, Also, going back to Minish Cap, that'll that'll be really fun, but I'll have to find a way to play it. Uh, I did have one comment on Skyward Sword, though, so I've never played it. But hearing Matt on the first episode, uh, season two... Uh, he was talking about how he thought maybe the 2D was going to be a barrier to entry uh, of playing and that he was worried about how that would inhibit him uh, getting interested in this game. And to that, I say, you hypocrite, you talk about the most divisive game in Skyward Sword as far as motion controls as your favorite and that didn't inhibit you. Why were you afraid of the 2D game? This is great. I think that was just something that caught my attention. So I very much look forward to playing Skyward Sword. Um, but Matt, come on, man. Mm, Shots fired. <laughs> I mean, are, are you going to get Skyward Sword day one? Probably. And Yeah, probably. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Depending right. on depending on what game we're playing at the time for the podcast, uh, it will depend on where it stands and when I play it. But uh, really looking forward to it. Uh, first blush reaction: Are you wanting to play it with motion controls on your TV, or are you wanting to play it handheld? No, nah, I'm handheld all the way. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I nothing against motion controls necessarily. That was just never my vibe. Uh, I grew up at the perfect time where the Wii was popular and it never really grabbed me with the motion controls. I never really liked them. Uh, and I didn't really like them when the switch came out on the joy cons. I mean, much improved upon the Wii concept, but it just has never been something that really was like, ah, that's just so cool. So, okay. Fair enough. Jackson, we really appreciate you stepping up and, uh, being on this episode in Matt's place. We've enjoyed having you on quite a lot. Um, and also, I mean, please let uh, let us know how you're feeling about Link's Awakening as you continue playing it. I mean, the uh, the climax of the game from this point. It goes places, I mean, so I'm really curious to hear what you have to think about it, honestly. So uh, and honestly, you'll probably blow through it pretty fast after this point, because there there comes a point where it's difficult to put down. So anywho, uh, thank you very much for being on. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to be back. All right. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show, and that makes us very happy Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Link's Awakening, Chapter 5, including Catfish's Maw. 
We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. Link's Awakening, of course, can be played in its original form on the Nintendo 2DS or 3DS or on your trusty old Game Boy or Game Boy Color or, of course, on the upcoming uh, Zelda Game & Watch. I forget what day that comes out, but anyway, it's on there. Or, of course, you can play the remastered version on the Nintendo Switch, which is, of course, the version that we are playing. In the meantime, may your hearts be full and may your arrows never miss. We will catch you next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify, or to purchase directly from GameShops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. Bye!